Story, etc. I think music really doesn't need any words or lyrics to be very, very uh, potent in its storytelling. That was Victor Vox from an interview coming up later in our programme. This is Story Etc. I'm Eleanor Rushton. I've always been more music enthusiast than expert, but I'm fascinated by the way music can shape, amplify and deliver stories. From the world of musicals, where many of us learned that songs sometimes do what plain old talking can't, to the soundtracks of iconic film and TV, to folk songs sung around a campfire, operatic trills and soaring orchestras, to brave new sounds made by instruments we don't know the names of. The possibilities of music are immense, and that is what this month's episode will seek to explore. We'll be looking at various ways of using music to convey story, its vast potential and the challenges it presents. I'm here with Jenny Redmond. Hello. Tom Crowley. Hello. And our composer, Odin Ornhill marson Hello. So something I think we all tried to approach this topic with was thinking about, well, as you said, kind of the ways that music itself is used in storytelling and interpreted by the storytellers, and also how it sort of um, can be used as a more abstract motif in, say, writing, for example. Mm-hmm. I think the fantastic thing about storytelling with music is that it's so accessible. There are a lot of other mediums that you could use to highlight storytelling or to go alongside storytelling in the same way that just aren't as accessible and aren't as communal as music, which just means that music just gets dispersed and used in so many different ways that makes it much more exciting, I think. Yeah, I think I'd say, sort of, that's my part being a musician and composer, that music is, I think, one one of the, in the most bizarrest, most kind of indescribable ways, one of the most powerful forms of art there is because it sort of stirs us in a way that we we kind of don't, that we can't quite put into words and makes us feel and think things without ever actually using words or anything like that. It's purely kind of textural, but all through sound. And so I think it's it's, that's why, as Jenny, you were saying, like it's interspersed through so many things, so many other kind of art forms like theatre or film or even mentioned in books or described in books or stories. Can everybody remember the, the strongest response to a piece of music within fiction, whether that was an underscore within a film or like an immediate response to had to something which was so in line with the story that was actually being told but heightened by... Do you know what, weirdly, I, it was when I was a teenager and I was getting into the Studio Ghibli films, the composer who I think is, I don't know if he's always worked with Miyazaki, but it's uh, Joe Hisaishi is his name. And the it might be that I was associating the music with the power of the film, but it's probably a bit of both. It's probably that the score itself was powerful, but then my attachment to the films was so powerful as well. That um, And I get this a lot with film film scores, but um, I remember when I, was, when I was younger, just listening back to the Spirited Away score, it was almost like the atmosphere and the magic of the film had been distilled almost too much. So it was like drinking neat squash <laughs> like without being watered down by the images and the story. It was like having all of that emotion just pumped straight in. And I, I actually sort of listened to it a few times and almost had to let it go, like stop listening to it. Because it was quite like, uh, uh, I could just feel my sort of chest compressing with like affection and, and the memory <laughs> of the, the film that it had gone with. I think I, I almost have had opposite 
reactions. I've often, when I was younger, I was listening to music and it would conjure up stories. And I think that, that in a big part is why I've gone on to, or why I was so interested in kind of film and theatre growing up and um, being part of that that in- industry, but also I think why I compose for theatre and film and, and, and various things, because it is that kind of your imagination running wild with music and being able to put the right kind, I mean, like Tom was saying, distilling the right kind of sound for the piece that you're composing for, kind of finding what that that story sounds like and distilling that into notes. It must be quite empathic, in a sense, trying to distill that down. It is is the essence of a story, trying to put yourself in that story's shoes, yeah. almost, and yeah. putting that into note form. In in a lot of ways, I'm, I think it is very important to kind of like and respect every project that you work on, because I think if you don't really, then you kind of kind of do a really botched job of it. Um, so I think that is very important to be empathetic and to be kind of present in the story in order to try and think about how it's going to sound or how it, how it should, how by, the, by virtue of how it sounds it's going to make the viewer or the reader feel. Alongside Odin Ornhill Marson's role as Story Etc. Sound Wizard-in-Chief, he's a composer for theatre and a performer in his own right. Tom Crowley and he have worked together on a myriad of projects and so, for our music episode, they sat down together to discuss the nature of collaboration when it comes to music and drama. I'm here with composer Odin Orn Hilmarsen and supervising editor of this programme in his fabulous palatial studio. Ah, my bedroom, yes. Yes, Odin's bedroom. (laughs) So first I guess I'd love to hear from you what, uh, for you, are the priorities in terms of information about a play or, or film or anything you're composing for? What are the first things you want to know? Um, usually I sort of I look to the director to give me some information about what they're feeling uh, about the show or the film or the you know skit or whatever Um, because usually you know them being the director they've got a certain direction that they want to take with it and often I'm looking to kind of follow that at least in 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 part Uh, sometimes they have no particular direction sort of musically or sound wise that they want to go into and in that case what's most important for me is to uh, get very familiar with the script to go into rehearsals as soon as I can and to kind of see how it's actually kind of forming when it's on on its legs and has actors actually speaking the lines. Because when you're reading, you stage it in your head far, like in a very different way to how how it actually then ends up being staged. Another thing that's hugely important and kind of... um, uh, makes a huge kind of difference to uh, to my direction is uh, seeing the design of the actual physical kind of how the set's going to look or how the film's going to look. So also being in touch with the rest of the production team is probably very helpful. Oh, it's hugely yeah, absolutely because you're definitely you're you're all making something together. You, no department should feel like they're a separate entity unless that's for some reason part of the reason why you're putting on the thing you know to do some kind of weird experimental thing where everyone's working completely separately i think that every every department has to be in some some sort of cohesion i mean you might have these the elements of that department working in contrast like for example my the the color palette of the design might be very bright but the music might be very sort of melancholic but you're still you still make that decision together to be that contrasty and to kind of to work off each other in that way so our two biggest collaborations, other than Story Etc., yep. to date, are probably Shed, mm-hmm. the first play I ever wrote, yep. 
So there was that, and also uh, Ghost City, which course, is yeah. the first show I staged in London yep. at Vault Festival in 2015. So talking about that process specifically hmm. uh, as I recall and correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm making myself sound too good I believe what <laughs> happened was first there was the uh, the script of course and you were seeing rehearsals uh, like you've already talked about uh, but I also would and I don't know how often this happens to you with other projects but I tell you maybe a list of songs or other soundtracks or other things I uh, had yeah. been listening to that inspired me or that I thought informed the tone yeah so I was talking about that specifically how helpful was that Oh, that's really helpful. In fact, I love it when a director gives me references um, because it gives me a very clear idea of what kind of thing they might be after. And sometimes the, the play isn't meant to sound like those songs, but you kind of you have to listen to that and kind of second guess the director in terms of what they want. I remember when I, you would send you those, those lists of songs that I'd often add a million caveats like it doesn't have to sound like this yeah, a bit like, yeah. a bit more like this one but not yeah, like that yeah. if you don't think so and, uh, I, I, I get notes from that from directors all the time kind of excusing things but I, I, yeah I, I'm very kind of relaxed about it it's, I think you they're, they're helpful they're, they don't have to absolutely decide everything they're kind of a jumping off point I, I usually know that yeah just because the song had a drum beat in it that, that doesn't mean that that's what the director wants the 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 piece in 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 the play to have um yeah you kind of have to use a bit of common sense i guess gloves off then uh -huh. both for, out of interest yeah and to um make our creative relationship more fruitful in the future <laughs> what is the least helpful i've been or what what hurdles have you run into in the past you know i the one of the least helpful things actually that i find like just in general this isn't just speaking about you or, or or even saying this is something that you do but in general from people one of the least helpful things is not getting any notes actually getting no feedback at all i um i suppose that might be because of a few reasons um i think i sometimes feel like i don't always have the best vantage point on seeing whether something works and i kind of look for people in the creative team to feedback and say that's working or the, this is great uh this could do with a bit of fine tuning here i'm not so sure about this usually when a director sort of uh you know after we've we've played something or tried something to to a to a scene and they kind of go yeah great all right we're moving on i'm like oh, ah, but are you sure there's nothing <laughs> can we and it's not that i'm kind of mining for a compliment or that i'm trying to get them to say no it's perfect it's perfect odin you gotta you, you gotta write and like I feel like that's not necessarily always the case, and uh, I'm always, I think critique and feedback is hugely important at every step of the way. I have absolutely in the past not given you feedback. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. Speaking from uh, the perspective of, of Shed and, and Ghost City specifically, uh, often that was just because I was happy with it, <laughs> which is the frustrating thing. Sure, and um, I sometimes just have a hard time believing that that could be true. Yeah, and also, uh, while with Shed and, and Ghost City, I remember the what notes there were, were were fairly simple and, and minor. And we mm. talked a lot more before the tracks were produced than after, I guess. They, it seemed like... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. A lot of scratches and, and, and general uh, attempts, just demo tracks and things. Yeah, no, but that's that's always quite handy. I mean, uh, I don't know if that's what you were kind of getting at, but like, it reminds me of this uh, quote by uh, Abraham Lincoln, which is, if I was given six hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend four of it sharpening my axe. 
I feel much the same way about writing. Yeah. It's that sort of, yeah, it's... I think it's definitely a thing. I think as artists, I think that that is a very good way to approach making something, kind of spending a lot of time in essentially what you might describe as a research phase um, where you are just immersing yourself and then and it's only when you're kind of ready to, to take that leap that you actually start putting pen to paper or fingers to keys or strings or, or what have you. Yeah, and it, it's borne out to an extent as well what you're saying because one of the things we swapped the most notes on and did mm. the most drafts on was the, the Awkward Ghost which was the ah. David K. Barnes play, which we yeah. did at Vault Festival in 2016, yeah. which I directed and you composed the music for. Yeah, And a lot of the minor cues were pretty much out of the gate. Like, that's absolutely fine. And, yeah. you know, we'd talk notes and things about that. Uh, but the theme, the sort of opening number, which is almost like a sitcom theme song. Yeah, right, yeah. That was uh, the only thing which was... We, we kept going back and forth took, on it. Took, took a little bit of time, yeah. Yeah, more jaunty, less jaunty. Yeah, more sinister, no, less sure. sinister. More melancholic, uh, less melancholy. Yes, I think it kept pushing you more melancholic, if anything. Yeah, no, absolutely. Beyond your comfort zone. No, but I mean, that, that, was, that was fine. I think that was a really good tone. Uh, and this goes back to me saying, you know, making mistakes is really useful. Um, often, after I read a, a, a play, usually I get ideas already, and I usually I do what I kind of call sketching, you know, like an artist might do, where I just kind of just find some sounds, find some textures, find some motifs or some melodies, or find the instruments, and I usually try to kind of sketch something out. And I remember doing that. I remember very clearly being like, I know kind of what I want to do for Awkward Ghost. I know where I want to go with it. I remember very specifically, I really wanted to um, have as part of the melody a, because it's about a ghost, but mm. it's, a, it's comically about a ghost. It's, it, it was a comedy about a ghost. I wanted uh, the first few notes of the melody to be a kind of tritone triad, which is what you might think of as being kind of the spooky chord, which is... <laughs> which is that and that is the first three notes it's the the melody goes it goes like that so so that was i remember i wanted that to function within the melody and uh, so i sketched that out a few times i didn't get it quite right uh, eventually kind of last minute i managed to find it for you a moment. Okay. I'll do my absolute best to give you uh, a segment in a play, a yeah. moment in a scene mm -hmm. uh, without a script, but uh, as close to the context you might need. Yeah. So we have uh, two people, two, uh, people. two adult people who were childhood sweethearts and that relationship was never quite uh, consummated. It was never quite uh, reciprocated uh, sure, properly. Yeah, yeah. Things kept them apart. Yeah. So flash forward about 10 years and uh, they're now both out on their own in the big wide world as grown-ups. And they're seeing each other for the very first time. They just bump into each other in the streets. So that's the moment we have. That's the moment. Okay. So what, what other questions would you have straight away? Um, what are they thinking? What are they feeling like? And where, where is this going? Um, what... How do they feel about it, the two of them? Which is a complicated question, I guess, because we're talking about two people who have led very separate lives up until that point and now 
they're kind of thrust into this quite what would presumably a somewhat awkward moment and and then the other question is kind of what what should the audience think or what should they not think do you want to <laughs> lead them down a different direction do you want to make it seem like it's going to be a happy reunion or and then kind of squash that a little bit later on in the play or do you want want this to have this kind of tinge of Oh, what what could have been, or what could be? Yeah, I don't know. All very good suggestions. Let's yeah. start pinning things down a little bit more. Okay. So let's say that the uh, let's have them called A and B. Doesn't really matter what gender they yeah, are, yeah, sure, uh, or anything like that. Sure thing. But so A and B. Uh, so A is has been besotted with B this whole time. Like okay, yeah, every classic. Every relationship A has had has sort of been seen through the lens of the memory of of B and what that could have been. Yeah. By contrast, B remembers this very fondly, but if anything was was not totally convinced at the time, and maybe was more emotionally inclined to push it away a little bit, like mm. was a bit more distrustful of the idea of you know this this romance, and uh, so B is is more or less getting on with their life as best they can. A uh, likewise, but is constantly wondering what if. So yeah. it's a very exciting moment for A, and yeah. it's a nice moment for B, but. B doesn't read into it the things that A does. As much as A, yeah. So, um, And let's say, for argument's sake, that this is going to lead to some kind of reconnection for them, mm-hmm. but it's going to end with all hopes of it being a positive thing crushed. So it has to have that kind of duality. And in, in, in a lot of ways, you, I think, to give the audience the space to see what a complicated moment this is, for both of the characters, you actually have to, I think, be quite, like, fairly neutral. It kind of depends, maybe, it might depend a little bit on kind of who has the power in the scene, maybe, like, who, or who's kind of leading that scene. Um, So I might say, in the interest of being sort of not biased, that we should handle this quite neutrally, that we should approach this fairly neutrally, that we... We aren't trying to um, puff up A's romantic um, uh, resurgence, um, and we shouldn't... Well, I suppose if it was B, we wouldn't even have music, (laughs) maybe. Um, So maybe it does centre a lot around A, actually, thinking about it. I would say so. I think in this moment, I think it's it's almost Mm. not totally seen through A's eyes. No. But is, yeah, very much focusing on their but if A, Yeah, if A wasn't didn't have the feelings that they did, this moment wouldn't be the pivotal moment that it is no, in the quite. play. Yeah, sure. Okay. So I suppose, I mean, it's going to be an underscore for a conversation, so we need to be quite sparse with how we, or, or we need to think a little bit about what instrument or kind of what kind of sound we're going to use. I suppose it would be a warm sound, because this is a warm meeting. I mean, um, even though the feelings might not be reciprocated, I think uh, this is still a fairly warm moment even for B. So um I'm gonna think a little bit about about what might fit. So I've got two sounds here. Uh, one is of a wine glass, sort of, you know, the kind of thing where you wet your finger and move it around the rim of a wine glass that a yeah. friend of mine uh, had made. Mm. Which I use quite a bit. It's really handy because it's 
It's it's a very kind of pure sound, but it still has that nice kind of uh, and pure by pure I mean it sort of it's it's it, it doesn't have a lot of kind of it's almost like a sine wave, which is just kind of a, a really simple frequency. Mm. Um, but 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 it still has some kind of variation to the sounds and kind of both kind of harmonic uh, layers of of the sound. And then I've paired that with this kind of bowing sound, which sounds a little bit like this. Um, I put a little filter on it. This is kind of it without the filter. Ah. And this is it with the filter. So it's just, it's kind of, we're, we're, we're filtering off the higher frequencies, which is going to make it a little bit warmer. It's also going to allow it to sit underneath the dialogue a lot better. I don't want to move too much musically, so I don't want to move the chords around too much. In fact, and what I'm also thinking is we use this as a bed, so maybe we kind of have a really simple chord... That just kind of moves very simply. We've got a fifth where the root note goes from the root note and then down to the fifth below and then comes back up. Maybe that's going to do something. And and then actually maybe we do want a piano to kind of come in. But really muted, um, I think. We've got this piano. Obviously this is much too forward, so we want to... Soften that up, and we want to be able to kind of tell it to. So, if I do the chords uh, on the piano that I was doing with the the texture, we'd get. And now, to demonstrate the potential of music as a vehicle for comedy, we have a song by the award-winning comedian Luke Courtier. Mary Lou, with your eyes so blue and your hair so auburn-coloured I met you, darling, in a bar down south And I said, oh, Mary Lou, tell me, what do you do? Well, I'm a mid-level systems analyst at Ernst & Young. Mary Lou, with your eyes so blue and your hair so blue and coloured, oh, I said to you, oh, 
nice all bar one just around the corner actually. Incredible flinty sort of peanut. Mary Lou, with your eyes so blue, and your hair so uncolored, I said to you, oh, Mary Lou, I feel like I hardly know you. Well, I really like films. I really like Blue Valentine. I like Only God Forgives. I like A Place Beyond the Pines. I love that one when they're in Shanghai, actually, and it's all fuchsia, and everyone's boxing each other, and Chris, Kristen Thomas is there, and she's like sort of matriarch. It's all quite tense. And I really love La La Land, but I actually, to, to an extent, so I don't know if really did she have to get so famous. I got that's going to sort of beside the point. I really like The Notebook. I really love, I actually do love, really love Drive. I love Ryan Gosling. Mary Lou. With your eyes so blue, your hair so auburn coloured, I said to you, oh, Mary Lou, do you know somewhere we can go and be alone together? Well, no, this is really incredible, juicy. I went to last week, just past, if you go past Haggerston and keep going, and they do this juice a whole turmeric for eight pounds but if you want to have you can have sprinkled ginger on top for 12 pounds and and it's it's sort of it's incredibly it's a spoken word and an arts venue as well and they do poetry notes and they do like live readings of articles in the spectator and you have to go and forage for all of your food that you want to have. So if you want to have mushrooms on sourdough, you have to go and find the sourdough cultures and the mushrooms, and they won't, don't have anything on site. So it's really, it's amazingly quite authentic. And they have these large tattooed DJ, they fly in from Reykjavik once per week, and he plays these songs that sound like pipes getting banged on. And it's just, you know, it's completely amazing. I mean, we should, we should go. For more information about Luke's work and upcoming gigs, check him out on Twitter at Luke Courtier or at LukeCourtier.com. I think for me, the pieces of music that had and have the most kind of visceral reactions have always been the ones that, I think ones that either underscore or threaded through um, stories where the, but where the music is what's picking up on the kind of m- most primal, basic, like animal of of the the people who are sort of going through the stories and have manners and have you know conventions and all that kind of stuff so for that reason I've always really loved sort of a lot of folk music and that sort of um type of punctuation and storytelling just things that sort of I think remind us that people are still the kind of same creatures that we were back when we were sort of howling at, at whatever um and before we'd sort of come up with as many instruments and things as we have come up with now. I was interested because I was going to say when you talked about being primal and un- undercutting all that, I was thinking think of the most famous film scores of all time. They're Jaws mm. and Psycho. Yeah, those sort of mm. uh, sharp yeah. sort of yeah. strikes Minimal of note, fear. Yeah. yeah, and it's like dead, 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 and it, it's 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 almost it's atonal and it's a mm. rhythmic almost. And it's, it's so simple as well. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't have yeah. to be more complicated than that in mm. order to make you feel something. Mm. And I, for a similar reason, I love um, John Carpenter's film scores as well. He's one of my favourites because, uh-huh. for one thing, he, uh, you know, it's uh, of course it's not a bad thing to have more people involved in the creative conversation. But you often get the feeling that 
he's using music not to be musical in the slightest. He's using mm-hmm. it to just punctuate the action in a way that he yeah, wants as the exactly, director. Yeah. And there's something quite nice and functional about that. Yeah. But then again, you're talking about folk music, maybe think about The Wicker Man. Yes, which that's great. actually oh. a brilliant example <laughs> of it, exactly that. That is a film that's deliberately about that connection between modern sensibility and, and a sort of old primal pagan mannerism, but it's so perfectly encapsulated in that with yeah. the maypole dancers and mm. leaping through the fire. But then also, yeah, in Wicker Man it has this other function of being uh, kind of juxtaposed to the horrors that are actually going on on that island. This kind of, the folky music sort of has this kind Falsely of offset. Security. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. cannot hear that. Somebody is coming without feeling a sort of, oh God. Absolutely. Oh God. And similarly with a lot of people in Stuck in the Middle with you, with uh, the Re- Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. That's a, kind of a perfect example of such a, a happy, kind of jaunty, funny, kooky little tune being used for something yeah. that's actually quite horrible to, to, to watch through. Tickets for operas and musicals are expensive, and TV and film are where most of us first experience music and drama in outright partnership. Jenny Redmond spoke to John Wigans, a composer who has written scores for film and television, including The Durrells, The Collection and Political Animal. Jenny spoke to him about the process of augmenting the experience of an audience through music. My name is John Wiggins and I am a composer for film and television. I've done a number of feature films and uh, I've worked on television dramas. I co-composed the last series of The Durrells, which is on ITV, and written additional music for... Uh, the moment I'm working on a series called Victoria, doing additional music with the main composer, and another series last year called The Collection that was on Amazon. And yeah, and then also quite a lot of sort of factual and documentary based work. How did you find the switch from um, working on music for documentary and factual programmes into composing for fiction? Uh, the switch for me was really the, the National Film School. I think without having gone to the film school, I wouldn't have been able to do that change. And also just the, the, the understanding that I learned about how to score drama. It's it's a different. It's a, I mean, it, it's generally it's it's not totally different in that a documentary can be very narrative, and it does have some of the same skills, but you're not dealing quite the same way in the story. I mean, they can be similar, but as a rule, with television at least, the, the sort of the what they need from the music and the process of scoring is quite different. I think the ambition in drama is bigger. You know the the scale, unless you're doing some very, very high-end documentaries, generally you're not dealing with much live recording, you're not dealing with such complex narrative arcs and character. Um, and, you know, from, from factual television is quite different, again, because generally factual television, the things I've done, like I've done the music for all the Michael Portillo Railway series, which is great fun, I really enjoy it, but it's just a, a different approach because you're more writing pieces of music they can then edit to and create and it's more mood pieces to sit in the background you know you're not trying to tell a story um you're more just sort of setting the scene and helping the thing move along and and that can be quite fun because you're just sort of essentially you're not writing the picture you're just sitting there might writing some fun music and hoping it's the right kind of thing for them yeah <laughs> stuff they can use so for me yeah the, the the change was really about about going to the film school and just putting my mind in a different place and and learning to be a filmmaker because I think that's a really important uh, it's a really important way of viewing yourself as a 
film or, or drama composer or television you know, working in, in this field because everybody involved in making a film or a drama is telling a story you know you're all storytellers and you're all part of a team telling a story and as a composer it's, it's quite easy for a composer to see once you see yourself as slightly separate and as a musician first and that can be a bit of a dangerous trap because it's really not about the music and it's really about the story and the characters and what's going on, on the screen and the music can't override that and the music can't be just doing something within itself for itself you know that's why i think often certainly my experience with people i've met through 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 the film school and in other fields people who have been very classically trained you know some amazing uh, classical composers, classically trained composers I've met who struggle with film music because they can't get away from the fact that the music is not the whole thing. The music can never be more, you know, maximum it can be is 50% of your of the audience's experience. Um, it's why I, I really admire Hans Zimmer, for example, who gets a lot of stick, but his music is totally serves the picture. You know, he, again, he's not a classically trained composer. He can't even read and can't write music. He can't write dots on a page, you know. Um, but he absolutely knows how to create a sound world that that expresses the the characters and the and the story and the world of the of the film and i think he you know he's a, he's a composer that absolutely would probably consider himself to be a filmmaker before a composer or before I mean, being a musician how does the process differ for films and tv does it does it change at what stage you get involved or how much information you get uh the biggest difference in my experience so far is in tv there's no bloody time <laughs> as i was saying you were talking before this um the the schedules are nuts i mean the, the feature films i've done i always sort of at the time thought i had no time to completely stress I and mean, did flying blind and it's not a very music heavy film the, the producer and director were very adamant at the beginning they didn't want like loads of music and you know wanted to be all kind of much more sort of sound designy and there's probably sort of 25 minutes of music in the film and it just felt like an immense task to do that in six weeks and now i'm like god i could do that in a day <laughs> you know because i'm doing the gb dramas you're, you're you're turning around you know uh, an hour long episode that probably has 40 minutes of music you know as a rule there's a lot more music in television drama than films except for maybe like you know really kind of mainstream hollywood films um so you know which has to be has to be spotted you know sitting down with the director and producer and deciding where the music's going to go and so forth um and then written and then if it's like in victoria i'm working on helping with now it's an orchestral recording that has to be scored by an orchestrator and recorded and mixed and all that happens in you know can be as little as 10 days from beginning to end or, or, or less occasionally you know Two weeks. Two weeks is normal. Is not sort of fairly normal, but so the big difference in TV drama is that you really have to hit every day a lot of music and really understand. You know, you have to very quickly learn to really see what's going on and, and understand it and do it really quickly without it being rubbish. <laughs> basically, uh, you mentioned working with um, producers and directors as a team. Mm. So uh, what kind of notes do you get back from them on things that you've composed? When you compose something and you send it off and you press the button and go, oh my God. Um, well, the really good notes are when they come back and say, that's totally brilliant and we love it. Which does happen about 1% of the time, half a percent of the time. Um, 
Oh, it can be anything really. I mean, you know, sometimes you get, I mean, generally, you know, hopefully it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a constructive dialogue. And most of the time it is, uh, cause you know, you might, you know, might score a scene and, and they'll come back and hopefully it's in the right direction, but it can be really good because I think producers and directors are seeing it a different way and from their own way. And they, they really know what they want to get from the, episode of the film whatever and they can really help you push the music in the right direction and it can be really great i mean many many you know obviously you want something to say it's brilliant but often it comes back and they it's like well it's kind of yeah i, I see what you're doing but you know it's not about the music they don't you know very rarely does anybody come i mean it's better if they don't come back and say oh i think going to an a flat chord there is not the right idea but generally it's about oh it's not quite hitting that emotional beat or or or, or, or actually it's, you know you're you're, you're playing this you're scoring this, but it's, you're kind of missing, you know, there's something going on between the characters you're kind of missing. Uh, and generally, generally the notes can be quite vague, but you know, when they're good, they are quite specific about what's going on with the story and what's going on with the characters and helps you to kind of push the music to be more accurate. You know, cause what the big thing of it is, it's quite easy to kind of just sort of do something that sort of works. It's kind of, it's a bit, in the right mood kind of thing, but being really kind of specific and accurate and detailed and doesn't mean the music not being complicated at all. I mean, it's often about actually stripping things out and making it simpler, but it's really just hitting those emotional beats and those kind of, sometimes the kind of the story beats, you know, to kind of really hit something. But generally, you know, music scoring is all about the emotional journeys and the emotional states of the characters because music doesn't communicate very well. Uh, how should I say practical things? You know, can't tell you that somebody's going to come around tomorrow at four o'clock, but it can tell you what the emotion is of that happening. And so it's really about just keying in really closely to the emotional, the emotional states of the characters. And sometimes that, that isn't totally on screen. It, may, it might be that the performance doesn't really carry it or the way the dialogue is doesn't really give you that. And the music can inform what the scene is trying to say. Yeah. Have you got any um, favourite or, or least favourite kind of musical tropes that are kind of expected with drama on TV and in film and things like that? Oh, God, that's a good question. That's a good and slightly difficult question to answer. Yeah, I mean, you know, you want to you want to try and do something when you know when composing, you want to try and do something that isn't doesn't sound sort of hackneyed. You know, I mean, if you're doing a costume drama, yes, it's probably going to be quite classical. Yes, it's probably going to be orchestral, but you want to try and do something with it that makes it not sound like every other costume drama you've ever heard. So yeah, so I mean, I mean that, but that's also personal taste. You know, sometimes things can be a bit kind of fluffy, frilly sort of the type of stuff and I personally like a bit of grit in things and um so yeah but yeah so but it's it's kind of taste really I mean it's just whatever sort of um the stylistic feels you're working in is trying to keep it fresh not sound cliched something in it that gives it a bit of a bit of its own identity because you're manipulating the audience and you want to do that without them realizing. So it's important. That's why it's good to not 
do something that sounds too hackneyed or too overdone because people become very quickly aware that they're being manipulated. You know, that's that's something that's something that people say to me so often is you know I think that often people say is oh I, I you know film music you know film music you know, I, you know, I don't really like music with films, you know, films with music in, because, you know, I don't like being told what to think. I don't like being told what to feel, rather. And I always sort of come back with, like, well, that's our job, is to tell you what to feel. That's the job of everybody making the film, is to tell you what, you know. We are manipulating you. I mean, Albert, Albert Hitchcock said this in the famous um, interview with Truffaut. He, he's talking about Psycho, and he's is, is great. I can't make I'm paraphrasing, but he says, he says, uh, about this, about the film generally, and I can't remember talking about the score, but the film is that I, it was like I was playing the or, the audience like you might play the stops on an organ, <laughs> which is totally brilliant. But you are doing that, and I think when people object to, especially like sort of you know very sort of slightly sort of mainstream Hollywood films that lay it on with a trowel, you know, uh, it's because they're being manipulated. I mean, I think what the people are objecting to is being manipulated in the way that they're aware they're being manipulated. What you really want is to be manipulated in a much more subtle way, <laughs> you know. And also, but it's also to do with the, with the nature of the language you're using. But we talk about these things because it's a very pejorative term, you know, to be manipulated. But you also could say you're being guided by the filmmakers to have certain, you know, to have certain emotional reactions and taking on an emotional journey. And that's what you're doing, and that's essentially manipulating people, you know, manipulating your emotional responses, you know. You go to see a film or watch a TV series because you want to be taken on an emotional journey. So, so yeah. So, I don't. Yeah, to answer your question, I don't really. Have, I can't think of like specific things. Oh, I would never do that or never do this. It's just you know, it's to do with taste, but it's essentially it's you know doing whatever it is you're doing in a way that the audience is not being obviously kind of patronised, you know, and you know, leaving. You know, you do have to leave space for the audience to think or to feel for themselves you, you know you need to leave you can't you know it's dangerous to overscore you know if you if you overdo it then it doesn't give people any space to have their own take on it you know or to have their own sort of you know to explore their own emotions as part of that journey you know so yeah so it's 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 guiding people through an emotional journey through the story of what you're doing without hammering them over the head is what your kind of job is, really. As we heard from Luke's song earlier in the programme, storytelling through music can be concise and distilled. I sat down with the songwriter and performer Victor Vox to talk about this kind of short-form storytelling. <clears throat> My name is uh, Victor Vox. I am a singer, songwriter, uh, performer, and I have a, a trio with a double bass player and a drummer with which I perform. Oh, thank you so much for talking to us, well to me. It's a pleasure. Um, um, so because this is our music episode, I thought I'd sort of kick things off by asking in general for you what the abstract question, I guess, of what the connection is between music and telling stories or storytelling. Hmm. Um... Okay, I, I start from my perspective. I guess when I when I when I write songs, I like to I like to tell stories which are not necessarily my experiences, but I like to tell stories that are that involve characters that I invent. Um, and so I guess I mean music and storytelling. Okay, now if we go to the roots of it, I, I guess um, 
when you uh, when you look at more tribal forms of music that were probably um, uh, traditional and ancient in different parts of the world, they used to involve trance um, and they used to involve uh, people gathering uh, and playing music and storytelling was very much a part of it. It was kind of the folklore, I guess. I guess it was very much linked from the beginning. It used to be this, you know, kind of like around the fire kind of moment when people would either play music or tell stories. I mean, that, at least that's just that's the way I see it. Mm. Uh, maybe it's a bit romanticized, I don't know. I, I've always been fascinated by storytellers. Uh, my dad has always told me stories from when I was uh, very young. Um, and I used to love listening to him. And I think it's something I've picked up and that I like doing in my music. Although, as maybe we'll see later, music can sometimes be almost a bit, I mean, the, the song format can be almost a bit frustrating um, when it comes to telling stories, uh, when you want to go in depth into the stories, because there is so much you can tell in a story. Uh, and the song format can be almost a bit uh, redu uh, reductive, yeah. uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah, 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 reductive. That's, that's really interesting. So why is it as, well, as a songwriter then, as uh -huh. opposed to other like longer forms or something, how have you navigated that, I guess, that frustration? Um, by trial and error, really. I think I've, uh, I've I wrote loads of songs that obviously I don't play on stage uh, because <laughs> I think they're bad. <laughs> uh, but they were, you know, they were good uh, exercises to get me to kind of uh, fit a story within a song. And I think the great power of music and of uh, songwriting is that the alliance of uh, a particular sound or note with a certain word is going to ev um, uh, evocate um, a, a very strong uh, imagery. So you don't necessarily have to say that much to conjure some images into the, the audience's mind. In this way, you can use storytelling without using too many words because you can't you can only fit a certain amount of words in a song um so you have to be careful in the way you use words in a song uh to make sure that it uh controls uh imagery without being too messy if you know what i mean i don't know yeah. if it makes sense no no i think that really does make mm. sense like kind of paring it down and learning i suppose to be concise i mean yeah. it sounds a little bit it sounds a bit like maybe trying to write a short story as opposed exactly. to having exactly yeah and sort of chipping away exactly kind of, yeah 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 cool. always trying to make it um, short I mean that's 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 uh, ultimately that's what I end up having to do all the time which is frustrating but it's a great exercise I guess as well mm. um, to come up with a story and then being like okay how the hell am I going to fit this into a song um, with you know a verse a chorus and I used to take a lot of freedoms when it came to song structures when I was younger mm. and to some extent I still do but you know as a good song you know there is a re reason why there is a pop format uh, right. of songs you know like people like to have a, a chorus that they can remember and stuff like this so before I used to make those when I was a like teenager or maybe a young adult I used to uh, write those songs which were I don't know they had like seven different sections and they were like 17 minutes long <laughs> and and I, and I used to tell those stories and I, some of them are I still really like but they're clearly not um, uh, very um, digestible, I guess, uh, from uh, an audience point of view, because they get a bit. Um, I mean, that you know, it's a bit of a weird format. 
it's a concept album. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that I, that thing you said about how do I tell this story in music, is that the way it usually comes then? You think you come up with a character or a story and then... Um, well, you know what? No, actually. I mean, there's... I never... I, I've, I've tried to work out how I write a song since I started writing some and I still haven't found, worked out. Like Every time I'm like, do I start with the music or do I start <laughs> with the lyrics? or do I, I never really know. But what I know is that I guess most of the time I come up with um, the music first, uh, usually on the guitar. Mm -hmm. and, um, and this music kind of dictates a mood. Uh, so... You know, this piece is going to sound uh, quite tragic. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously, I'm not going to tell a story that is very happy. Although sometimes it's quite nice to do to do this to have a very tra a very maybe uplifting music and tell something quite dark. Mm -hmm. It can be you know this can be part of the process. But anyway, uh, I come I usually most of the time I guess I come up with the music first, and this music kind of sets up the tone and the mood, and then I try to think, okay, what characters could I fit in there what story could i tell what places does it remind me of and uh and then from there i kind of like it it kind of like it it gives me an area to play with where you know i can pick from you know either memories or ideas or i can you know i can come up with some 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 characters can you think of to put you on the spot can you think of an example of like a, maybe a song from the ep that kind of would from the ep i mean i guess yeah uh, Uh, Cloud Shepherd is this little tale about um, a cloud who um, doesn't want to follow the flock of clouds anymore and who uh, wants to be um, a thunder cloud and who wants to be angry and who wants to throw lightning. And so he, um, yeah, he goes towards the storm and doesn't follow the, the, the flock and, uh, and, and becomes... And, ends up becoming the leader of the flock. So I had this, I had this, the, the music first, I came up with the guitar parts. This one is quite an old song. Um, it's probably like about eight years old. And, and I came up with the, with the guitar and, uh, and then I was just like, okay, so what could this tell? And then I just came up with that story, I guess, but fitting kind of the, the mood of that, of mm. that guitar uh, part. When you look at uh, film scores, they tell so much about what is happening or they actually tell a lot that is not happening on screen but you know just by the music you can tell oh this something bad is going to happen or something great is something you know like yeah. so m music really doesn't need any words to 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 be storytelling mm. it it already tells a story it's just like you know just like dance can be a form of narration that is very strong you don't you don't you don't need words to do any storytelling really i think music really doesn't need any words or lyrics to be very very uh potent in its storytelling in its you know in its uh capacity to uh conjure imageries and 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 uh yeah and stories and feelings and um yeah are there any sort of particular figures that come to mind when you think of people who either use music to tell stories or completely tell stories through music well i guess uh, a major influence for me has always been uh, tom waits his use of words is is, is uh, incredible he's got this uh, fantastic ability to to generate a whole world and like so many different perspectives in just one song through through you know through the way he writes and through the way he makes his music like he's 
and he's done so many different genres. I think it's it's definitely an artist to explore if you want to if you want to you know if you're interested in storytelling and music. I think Tom Waits is definitely the way the f the first artist to go to. He's <laughs> just so I don't know. There's so much to each of his songs that is um, brilliant and evocative and uh, and uh, I don't know. He's he's really great at making you know one-liners which are great for songs one-liners that in that that bring up a, you know a whole story just in one line you just you've got the, the the character the place the situation you know but you know it's like it's kind of like i like to i like to have i'm not sure what the right word in english is to be honest constraints mm. yeah so i like to have like I like to give myself some constraints otherwise I, I just don't know where to go and it's yeah. too wide so the music is a great way for me to uh, to I guess you know when I pick up my guitar I I think it's the most direct way of expressing my inner feelings uh, so I pick up a guitar and usually what I'm going to come up with um, is very much what how I feel inside mm. so this is, you know, this is the way I get my uh, raw emotions out uh, through playing guitar or through singing, but not not the two, both at the same time. So anyway, creatively, I, I, you know, guitar is the way I express my my creativity and express raw emotions. And then this gives me kind of a landscape to play with, and I have I have this landscape of emotion, and then I am going to draw the characters on it through songwriting through lyrics and through words with you know with words um yeah so i guess that's how that's how i shape my shape my uh, my songs and my you know stories
Cloud Shepherd from Victor Vox's new EP. Do check it out on Spotify or iTunes, or find them on Twitter at Victor Vox Music for details about upcoming gigs. I really love how um, music has, uh, well, music use of music in fiction has evolved. So we we obviously had um, more traditional forms of musical theatre, and now there seems to be a bit of a um, a revolution, and it's starting to get used in much more modern ways. So so one of my favourite shows at the moment is Crazy Ex Girlfriend, mm. which is entirely hinged on music and has numerous songs per episode but my favorite thing about that is all the songs are really good and i don't know whether it was something that's happened with musical comedy in years gone by where you when you started listening to it you knew that it was a comedy song you know it wasn't done to as as high a standard as you might uh, with a a musician who wasn't doing this as part of a story but they've got to a point now where the stories that they're telling through music are things that i listen to on repeat Throughout the day, I am just... Yesterday, I had one line from Ping Pong Girl stuck in my head for about four hours. Nice. And it's just incredibly catchy, incredibly well done, but entirely story-based. And I think it's just going to push that genre so much further forward. I have a theory about that. I think YouTube has been a massive contributor to that. Because Rachel Bloom began as a YouTube comedy songwriter. Sure, sure, yeah. yeah. And likewise, uh, Flight of the Concords. And I think they did oh, sure, YouTube yeah. songs, but they were and certainly... Lonely Island. But Lonely Island as well. And yeah. also uh, Garfunkel and Oates, who yeah. have a, a much underappreciated yeah. oh, TV sitcom yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's access to people who are doing this that might not necessarily be able at the time to tie it into a longer project. Mm, yeah. But are doing things of such a high quality that they can put out in snippets that, that get consumed on a kind of piece-by-piece basis. Yeah. Well, the, the chronic what calls of Narnia is probably one of the most pioneering internet sketches, you know, uh, that was just for the internet. So far, and it ends up with Andy Samberg and, and all their lot uh, getting onto SNL. And 
becoming more successful entities. And uh, when you think about it, that is a comedy song. Mm. It's it's a five minute sketch. It's a comedy song, and, and that kind of is a format that is quite a good recipe for having a good web sketch, which Rachel Bloomin followed as well, and a bunch of other acts too. So I think that has been a big factor. Yeah, I think it's a good point actually. Kind of the digital online age being a, a massive kind of uh, platform for uh, for hitherto impossible dreams to be hatched. I wonder if there's a link up there with um, the modern age and people's need to feel emotionally connected to something and something that's being put through digitally is actually more desired because it's got that, that quick snapshot of something that you're going to connect to on such a big level without the need to put two hours into a film to feel the connection and get that kind of payoff. You can watch a three-minute song which completely mm. satisfies your need for emotional fulfilment. Yeah, I think the th- one of the things also about what you said about that they're also just good songs. I think when musicals work and endure, it's when, you know, not only are they there in a functional capacity to kind of tell a story, mm. well, it's, you know, the difference between bullet pointing out a story and, and writing a story. It's also being conveyed through, you know, playing with the genre or playing with, um, you know, different musical allusions to things and that kind of stuff and I think when you have people who are imaginative about that kind of stuff when it comes to using music to tell a story it takes it to something that is going to really really reach people and endure you know Mm. yeah no I mean great musicals have enduring songs I mean I constantly I remind myself that hey big spender and is it rhythm of life they they originated in was in the musical sweet charity yeah Um, summertime well, Summertime, of course, yeah, that that was in a musical. I mean, these these songs we kind of grow up with actually were kind of originated in telling a story and having words and lyrics that that move a certain story along. But actually, they work standalone, and that's quite interesting. That's quite it could be quite powerful. Um, Do you feel the same is true of soundtracks? Yeah, I mean, we sort of get exposed to soundtracks or songs through soundtracks. Um, that that mean that we might never have heard that song otherwise. But for example, I know quite a lot of people who are very familiar with uh, the song These Days, uh, performed by Nico, I think written by Jackson Brown, uh, which features in uh, the film Royal Tenenbaums by Wes Anderson. And Wes Anderson is a guy who uses soundtracks a lot in his films to kind of create a mood and a, and a character in his films. Uh, and I think, yeah, there's, there's uh, tons of songs on there that I wouldn't have heard if it wasn't for watching those films. Speaking of Wes Anderson, uh, a song which I love now, I love The Kinks and have for quite a long time. I'd never heard This Time Tomorrow until I saw, uh, I think it's Darjeeling Limited. Ah, okay. But uh, I went, what is this? This sounds like The Kinks. And yeah, you know, that's probably just my pop uh, naivete. But that was <laughs> that was the thing where I went, oh, crap. I mean, because, you know, it's not his best film possibly i enjoyed it but the soundtrack is completely spotless yeah i think wes anderson is definitely a, a an interesting name uh you know amongst say tarantino and edgar wright uh in using soundtracks to really uh, create this completely separate kind of character to to the film that, that really kind of complements it as it goes on i find it can be quite um if it goes wrong it's very, very discombobulated. Yeah. yeah. So uh, The Watchmen has a better soundtrack <laughs> than it is a film. Yeah. <laughs> and well, you just listen to yeah. it, that's fantastic. Yeah. But I just don't want to see anything. 
I don't want to watch this. Yeah, yeah. But I'm going to go and listen to Hendrix now. Thank you very That's much. That's because Zack Snyder just took all the songs mentioned in that the book are in and the... just underlaid just, them. Yeah. You know. yeah. This will do here, probably. I don't know. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm Zack Snyder. <laughs> As a, a, a really daft mention, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, how they can often sort of bring a resurgence for that particular song into mm. popular culture. So thinking particularly about Wayne's World and how oh. well Bohemian Rhapsody did after that film came yeah. out. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden it's, it's you know, it's trendy again because because Wayne and Garth and you obviously you were doing the drum solo on your own and people, I, I still do that now. Because, yeah. But <laughs> a little headbanging. A little yeah. headbanging, yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's partly because, like what you said, which is sometimes it can just alert you to a song that you'd either forgotten about or mm. didn't know. But I think also when there's a song that's connected with a film you've loved it takes on that memory like it it also reminds mm. you of the film yeah. which is how a good soundtrack i think should work if if it's been well chosen and it's knitted well with the story listening to insert song here um will make you sort of conjure up the memories of that world again which is awesome because it's this sort of this aspect of the storytelling that endures through the music that's been chosen it becomes like a shortcut to that emotional feeling it becomes a yeah a fast track mm. to feeling a certain way yeah Absolutely. exactly And now, for another example of music's ability to conjure character and shape narrative, we have a set by Anna Lou Larkin. It was recorded live at one of Story Etc.'s live shows by Andy Goddard and Odin Ornhill-Marson. My little cabbages, you are well? Oui? It's a long walk down, huh? (laughs) You are having a hugely satisfying evening! Some of you are not yet hugely satisfied. Are you ready for the tone to be considerably lowered? Well, <laughs> bon, that bodes well. Huh? Alors, my name is Annelou Larkin. That is Annelou avec un grand A, un grand L, et un grand O. And I'm very excited to be here tonight at Story Etc. Live! I know, it's very exciting. Now, you may have noticed, oh, you may have noticed that I am not like you. No, I do indeed come all the way from Paris, France. No, you don't have to cheer that. It's just where I come from. But what you can do, my friends, because I'm very homesick. It's very long time since I've been in France. And there's no fucking way they're letting me back in. So what I would like you all to do is I would like you all to say a great big, ah oui, is that something you could do for me? Très bien, but I think you've got a bigger one in you. So let's try that again after three. Un, deux, trois! Ah, oui. Ooh, very good. Alors, let's try that again, just the ladies. Un, deux, trois! Ah, oui. Ooh, just the gentlemen. Un, deux, trois! Ah, oui. Just that man right there. Ah, oui. ah, very good. Round of applause. Oh, la, la. What is your name, my friend? Tom. Tom. Ah, très bien, Tom. Alors, Tom, could you say, ah, oui, Annelou? Très bien. Tom, could you say, ah oui, Miss Annalou? Ah oui, Miss Annalou. Très bien, Tom. This time, when you say it, could you just gently tug on my hair and put your hand... He was going to do it! <laughs> Dirty bastard. No, Tom, you are my favorite already. Uh, so, my friends, in France, there is one thing is more important than anything else in the whole world. Is more important than food, is more important than wine, is more important than civil action, and that is love. In France, we are in love with love. And what I like to do is I like to tell love stories. Uh, can I have a cheer if you have ever been in love? 
Okay. A little bit hesitant. That is okay. Can I have a cheer if you are in love? Oh, ver very positive over there. Très bien. Can I have a cheer if you were in love, but now you fucking hate the person, but you can't say anything because they're sitting right next to you. Bon, cool. So we love love. Uh, do we love stories? Yes, we love... I know. They do say that cabaret is just a theater in education with cock jokes, which I wholeheartedly subscribe to. So I have a love story for you today. And this is, uh, this is about my first grand amour, d'accord? My first big love. And uh, this is from when I was a student. And I think a lot of people learn a lot about love when they are students, you know? Uh, you are young. There are no consequences. You think there are no consequences. And I was not different. And uh, my first big love, he was, uh, in fact, my professor. Yes, just because it is predictable does not mean it was not quite a lot of fun. Uh, he was called Richard. He was an astronomer. Well, not an astrologer. They are different, very different. He was a very serious scientific man. But he did not want to make love to me. So he's very sad. He's a, he's a story of, of frustration. In fact, a story of frustration. I think we all understand a little bit about frustration, huh? You definitely do, Tom. Alors, <laughs> uh, so this is a story about, uh, about Richard. He is dead now. <laughs> but he's a very jaunty tune, huh? So don't worry. <clears throat> C major, jaunty. Ah. Richard was a Harvard-trained astronomer. So naturally my Hercules was on the dole. And though he seemed quite pleased to have bagged a commoner, he showed no interest in my supermassive black hole. It is massive, huh? He'd hold me in his grasp, I'd feel his warhead. His grip was erudite and capricorny. He'd put me down and swiftly kiss my forehead. I'd never felt so patronized. Starman, 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 won't you touch my glowing sphere? Once you've seen my red giant, I know you'll persevere. I'll help you study every night your theorem, Coleman Mandula. If you reach into my jeggings tight and touch my vulpicula, I'll carry all your microscopes, I'll be nice to your friends, I'll dab your dry red wine lips and chop off your split hands. I'll try to feign an interest in your frankly boring chat. If only you'd reach out and touch my poor imploring twat. Starman, 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 you know it isn't fair. Many times I've helped you hide your strangely thinning hair. I'll help you hide your egg and if you only say I may. But know that I'll be liquid if I hold out one more day. I'll eat your shitty sourdough and your quinoa with a smile. I'll wear the tartan jumper you bought from the Royal Mile. I'll learn the names of all your heroes. I'm prepared to take a punt. Just take your fucking hand and fucking touch my fucking... You 
people are disgusting, huh? <laughs> After many weeks of this frustration, I started thinking it might just be me, not really. So short of offering bribes and libations, I thought it best to show the man some knee, nothing. I was very close to giving up. I'd stop changing the sheets upon my bed. So how it runneth over my little cup. When one day Richard turned to me and said, Do me like Orion, squeeze tight upon my belt. Take me like the shining sun and watch my features melt. Make it hot in gashes till my skin comes out in blisters. Fuck me like the Pleiades. That means bring all your sisters. Fuck me like the morning star till I can't tell night from day. Do me like the North Star. I need help finding my way. Take me like Triangulum, if you can get your legs up there. Let's fornicate like Fornax, obscurely, and in a way that nobody else has heard of. Roger me like Gemini in astronomical speed roast. Do me once like Sinius, unashamedly crisscrossed. Do me then like Libra, surprisingly asymmetric. Come sit now upon my plow and sit upon my... I think you know how this goes by now. Do me regally and moon-shaped like Corona Borealis. Stick one arm out like Perseus. We'll pretend he's an extra phallus. Yes, two speed roasts in one chorus. My daddy is so proud of me. And very nice to have him in tonight. Hello, Dad. I'll take you like Pegasus. We'll fly through the skies. I'll take you like Microscopium, because it doesn't matter when you're in love. I have since learned that uh, penis shaming is very anti-feminist. So uh, I must come up with a replacement joke. Or just stick with the truth, huh? <laughs> So we had found a way to keep us happy. Stick to positions written in the skies. But don't forget that things can still turn crappy. When you don't know shit and try to improvise. Do me twinkly, twinkly, like the star up in the sky. Take me like the cyclops, you can put it in my eye. Do me like magnesium, I'm feeling elemental. Break me in like Virgo, there's no need to be atchy, that one was okay. Do me like the Milky Way, all soft and brown and creamy. Eat me in between your meals and lick me clean and gleamy. Take me like the blessed moon, all nobbly and cratered. Fuck all this, I'm going to find a sexy teenage waiter. Merci à tout merci. That was Anna Lou Larkin. For information about upcoming performances, find her on Twitter at Anna Lou Larkin. So I guess tying this up, um, music in storytelling, just music in general, I guess I should say, is... This incredibly, I mean, if, if I may be grandiose, this incredibly kind of powerful and both flexible 
uh, artistic mechanism that we can kind of utilize in art and storytelling. Music can kind of heighten, it can support, it can direct, it can complement, uh, it can it can contrast. And for that reason, music is uh, just heavily, heavily used in all forms and uh, and and shapes of storytelling. Uh, and what do we feel about that? Uh, I think it's going to continue to push storytellers to match their words to the emotional connection that people have innately felt with music. I think it almost sets the bar of in mediums like theatre and film and television where they go so well together. Like I was saying before, when you, when storytelling isn't as good as the music that you're listening to, you're very much aware of it. So as if it, if it's meant to go along well, it's really going to raise the bar for the type of fiction that needs to be written, mm. surely. I think a criticism that's often levelled against uh, scores and um, in theatre or TV or film is that it's telling you how to feel. Mm. And absolutely, if something's too saccharine, it's over the top. Mm. I mean, that's something that feels very jarring about old films. You know, the love theme is these sort of very warbling strings. And yeah. you think, yeah, I get it, they're in love, fine. But I often think it's it's more just a, a taste issue. I don't think it's about the um, the quality of the music. I think it's about how tastes have changed. But I also think it's it's... It highlight it can highlight weaknesses in the writing. Like you'll accept any sort of saccharine undertone as long as you're convinced enough. So, for mm. example, Casablanca, one of the most sort of romantic films of all time, with these incredibly compelling romantic leads, and even if the music uh, veers a bit down the saccharine side, you're fine with it. You buy it, yeah, yeah, because you're convinced. But I think today, often when music is accused of of being too leading for an audience which it is sometimes understandably yeah. it can be cack-handed it can be badly deployed i think it's almost more of a question of not only the writing it's trying to support but also the directing the pacing and the way the music is deployed which uh, i suppose is part of a huge team decision it's the editor the director the composer everybody mm. i feel like to generalize but at its sort of best and most successful a score or a, any piece of music that seeks to either tell a story or help to tell a story should both ground it in reminding us that it's dealing with people with emotions and also heighten it so mm. to elevate to literally underscore it to sort of yeah. to say that this is important we've met, we've set, decided that this is important enough to sacrifice four minutes or four hours or four days or however long. And so just pay attention to this. One other thing that I've just thought is I really like that some uh, with soundtracks, it started to happen that you get certain songs that are recurrent across films with no connection and TVs and things like that because they happen at a certain point when something particular happens. So the thing that um, reminded me, um, in The Handmaid's Tale a couple of weeks ago, She's just done something quite empowering and she leaves the house to Don't You Forget About Me, which is very mm. much a kind of, <laughs> you know, it's, it's exactly the same feeling of The Breakfast Club. Yeah, and it's right, the, yeah. It, it, it's that same, and you, you kind of go, that was amazing. Now I've got that song. Now I've got that memory from The Breakfast Club as well. Yeah. And it's the big fuck you to all of it. That's like, especially interesting because... because you so associate that song with that moment in Breakfast Club. So yeah. it's almost, yeah. it's not only trying to call back to the feelings you have with that song, but specifically that movie. I think that leads uh, us into an interesting point that actually I, I, I often feel like my part as a composer or sound designer, a person who's trying to take responsibility for the sound and the sort of sound feel of 
a piece of work is actually you're often trying to second guess your audience. You're often trying to trying to have in your mind what is it that the audience will feel or expect that you have to try and circumvent or navigate through. So with that example of um, Don't You Forget About Me, um, you know, there had to have been a, 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 that must have been a very kind of uh, calculated decision to use that because it is so known. So, yeah, it it is so known by uh, by being connected to the Breakfast Club. And I think composers are often doing this as well. Um, and often, you know, it can be said that that scoring something is just kind of a bit of a bag of tricks. You, you're kind of pulling out certain styles or motifs or not motifs, but you're sort of you're pulling out certain tricks, uh, you know, minor keys for for sadness, you know, to be really simplistic about it. But um, uh, certain instruments go to certain moods, certain tempos go to certain kind of uh, drives and rhythms in, in the storytelling. Um, that often your your understanding of how you expect the audience to react to the music plays such a huge part in how you actually score the the thing itself. So on a very base level, a, a far more simplistic level, mm. this is why, on the one hand, when you want to reinforce the audience's feelings, it's nice to have a sort of beautiful, uh, windswept, mm. uh, romantic theme underneath Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Mm. But also, on the other side... It's why it's so effective to see someone's ear being cut off, undercut with stuck in the middle with you. Exactly. I mean, that's that's why music is this wonderful thing that you 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 can play around with it. It it doesn't. There are kind of rules, but there aren't really rules. So you could look at a scene if you have the film of it and you're you having to score. You could look at it and think. Uh, this is a sad scene, so I'm going to do it in minor, but but or you know I'm going to do it with this set of instruments because it has this kind of very expressive tonality or timbre to it. Or you could actually go, what this scene is actually asking us to feel is something completely different, something more complicated, and so you might actually approach it very differently. Things aren't ever clear cut, and things aren't ever uh, kind of decided. That's part of the charm and the the kind of ingenuity of of music and music making. And if you wanted to make yourself sound clever, oh, as you were finishing a, a group discussion on a, a note which you wanted to sound particularly poignant and intelligent, what would you do? Well, yeah, and uh, and certainly if I wanted to add a certain bit of gravitas to my voice per se, or what I'm what I'm saying, I might start to weave in a little bit of underscore that has uh, a certain profundity to it, and that 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 is the power of music. But then you might have to then bring all that underscore down because we have to talk about plugs so anything exciting coming up we have this month um our story etc live show this is august the 24th thursday in the wenlock and essex in angel london um we're going to have a whole host of um comedians storytellers and maybe a quiz definitely a quiz definitely a quiz definitely Aww. a quiz we can't wait to write that quiz lovely love a quiz um, 101, who were the theatre company who appeared in the last episode, Interaction, are also doing some work with the London Czech Centre. So keep an eye on Twitter if you're interested in some interactive living room theatre. So what's the Twitter handle for that, Elle? That is at 101 Theatre. And my side of the production team, Crowley & Co, are now residents at Brasserie's Adele in Piccadilly Circus at the very centre of London with our variety show, The Night. It's going to be the first Monday of the month, every month until the end of this year, 2017. 
So the next one coming up, as you're listening to this, will be the 4th of September. That's Monday, 4th of September. Show starts at 9.15, but don't worry if it finishes a bit late. The travel links are exceptional. If you'd like any more information on any of the interviews you've heard, you can find full episode notes on our website at storyetcetrapod.com. You can also tweet us at storyetcetrapod or email us at storyetcetrapod at gmail.com. Do get in touch, especially if you have a short story or play you'd like us to consider for the programme. We're always delighted to hear from exciting new content makers. That's all for this month. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. Sex. Story Etc. Episode 6, Music, was produced and presented by Tom Crowley, Jenny Redmond and Eleanor Rushton. The supervising editor was Odin ornhill Marson, who also composed the music. Our guests this month were Odin ornhill Marson, Luke Courtier, John Wigans, Victor Vox and Anna Lou Larkin. Story Etc. is a production of Audio Scribble and Crowley & Co. Thanks for listening. <laughs>